Welcome to the Theology Mom podcast. Today we are sharing a replay of a recent interview that Krista did on the Beautifully Rooted podcast with Kat Elias. You will hear Krista share a little bit about her journey through bipolar disorder and some of the strategies she developed to survive that season. We hope you find it encouraging. And now, here's Kat. Welcome everybody back to the Rooted and Edified show. I'm your host, Kat Elias, and you are in for a special, special treat today. We have an amazing episode for you today titled Journey to Mental Wellness. And to help us understand her journey to mental wellness, we have an amazing woman of God, Krista Bontrager, and happy dance for you. Before I introduce Krista to you a little bit more, although you probably already know who she is, I want to remind you about a few things about this podcast. This podcast is part of Beautifully Rooted, which is a Christian mental health and education corporation. And the show, The Rooted and Edified Show, is a fun-loving, no-facade, conservative Christian worldview show for both men and women who want to hear about the four T's, which would be testimonies, topics, talents, and theology, of course. And with Krista, we have kind of all of those all in one here. We want to help you grow more mature in your walk and grow deeper in your relationship with Christ. And if we can get a few laughs on the side, I'm happy with that, definitely. As a reminder, we put out both an audio podcast and a video one. So whichever is your preference, there's something available to you. And if you watch a show and you are just excited about what we're doing and you want to support us or help out in some way, you can contact us through our website, which is www.beautifullyrooted.com. And that is spelled B-E-Y-O-U. So let me jump in and introduce to you Krista Bontrager. She is a fourth generation Bible teacher. How amazing is that? That is such a blessing of having multiple generational Bible teaching. That's amazing. She's also an author, a podcaster, a former university professor, and a homeschool mom. My goodness. Krista's teaching reverberates with Christians from all walks of life. She has a unique ability to communicate the truth of scripture in an accessible and practical way. And she has dedicated her life to helping others discover how to love God in spirit and truth. She has her BA in communications from Biola University, a master's in theology, and a second master's, right, in Bible exposition from Talbot School of Theology. She worked for over two decades in various capacities in theology and apologetics, including being a theologian at Reasons to Believe. We're so glad that you're with us, Krista. You are amazing and you have some amazing ministries. Would you mind telling us more about yourself and also your ministries? Absolutely. And you're right. It is a wonderful legacy of my family to have so many generations of Christians. My great-grandfather was a minister in the Dutch Reformed Church in Amsterdam. Then my grandfather was a church planter in California. And then I have an uncle and two aunts who are ordained ministers in okay. different denominations. And then there's myself. So just super honored uh, that the Lord put me in a, in a family that with that yes. rich of a legacy. And yeah, it's it's been a journey for me. I haven't always wanted to be a theologian. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't wake up as a child and they said, what do you want to be when you grow up? No, and you're I like, what a theologian. That I wanted to be a crossing guard or something. Oh, wow. Well, there was a cross. At least the cross was in there. That's right. In some capacity. Yes. Yeah. But um, theology really found me. And, and we'll talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that as part of my journey in mental health. Because 
theology has definitely played a big role in that. But yeah, as you said, I have worked professionally in theology and apologetics for over 25 years. I run a website called theologymom.com and a YouTube channel. Uh, I've got several hundred videos there of various kinds of teachings related to theology and how to interpret scripture. A kind of the tagline of my ministry is define your terms, disciple your kids and defend the faith. And that's really what I like to be up to is helping to equip and empower everyday people to be able to talk about their faith and teach others, whoever the Lord has supernaturally and strategically placed in their sphere of influence. A few years ago, I met uh, Monique Dusan. Now we are the co-founders of the Center for Biblical Unity, which is a ministry devoted to talking about issues related to a biblical, uh, biblically faithful position on race and justice. Monique and I met first in November of 2017, and God just developed a very unlikely friendship between us. And out of that friendship came the Center for Biblical Unity. I've been married almost 30 years and two grown kids. So we're still here. (laughs) Praise God for that. It's almost like getting a degree by watching all of your videos and your classes and all those things. You're so knowledgeable. We're thankful for that. So you need to run out and go check both of those things out. Can you tell us the websites one more time? Yeah. So theologymom.com and centerforbiblicalunity.com. Okay. So I already know that there will be so many that are blessed by hearing your testimony. Your story displays the miraculous and awesome power of the Lord and his amazing love, mercy, and his grace. What a blessing to have you with us. We're so thankful for you to share your story with us. So would you please share your, share with us your background, your history with mental health and your testimony of how the Lord delivered you and worked in your life and your family's life. Yeah, that's kind of the whole enchilada in one question. So um, I was raised in Southern California by a single mom. She's now in her 80s. Uh, She still lives in the same house where I grew up. My parents were divorced when I was about two years old. And so most of my childhood was I was raised by my mother and uh, an absentee father for the most part. I usually saw him about three times a year, three weekends a year. And He was a very successful, is a very successful, he's still alive. He lives locally here. He's a very successful businessman. And he was traveling the world in the 70s and the 80s when I was growing up and, you know, making his fortune. And um, we have a very on again, off again relationship. And it's definitely in my childhood, I don't think I fully understood the depth at which my father's absence in my life impacted me. And uh, so that has been a long journey for me and in coming into a deeper awareness of of that. Uh, My mother worked very hard. She was a public school teacher. She worked incredibly hard to make a life for us and always went to church Going to church was very important to her and it became very important to me. And uh, she worked two jobs so that I could go to a Christian school when I was in junior high and high school and all the way through college. She's definitely a hard worker and I admire her greatly. Yeah. 
I, uh, even though, you know, of all of my mother's efforts to make a wonderful, stable life for me and my amazing extended family of my aunts, uncles, and cousins, and all of those awesome things and resources that I had as a child growing up, I struggled very deeply with deep loneliness uh, and isolation, feelings of isolation. And when I was 15, I started developing symptoms of what I now know was bipolar disorder. I had very bad depression. And around that same time when I was 15 is when I really fully understood the gospel. I'd always grown up in church hmm. and, and, you know, I think I was even baptized as a very young child um, and made a profession of faith. But I, I, I can't say that God like really gripped my heart until I was 15. And there was a person who was instrumental in bringing me to the Lord as a classmate at oh, wow. high school. I'm still in contact with her. That has been a wonderful blessing to me in the last few years that we've been able to reconnect. And um, she was in my life for a very short season when I was a freshman in high school. And she was just another student at the school. Um, That's amazing. And she witnessed to me and I came to faith in Christ. And so I had this kind of dual thing happening for most of my teenage years through my 20s and 30s of, you know, growing in the Lord. And my faith was very important to me. But at the same time, having a private struggle with long-term depression and a very difficult kind of inner life in my mind. And back then, you know, mental health issues weren't as, we weren't as open in the public in discussing oh. them. And so I didn't know that these things had names. I didn't know that there were resources available um, my mother did try to take me to a counselor once when I was in high school because she kind of sensed something was wrong, but she didn't know enough to know like what kind of therapy I might need or where to take me even. And when I went to college, I went to Biola University. I started going to the university counseling center. I, I had some friends that knew that I was just kind of different and something was really wrong with me. And they, I, hmm. I don't think they had the word depression, you know, in their vocabulary, but they knew that something about me was just kind of different and off. And they recommended that I go to the counselor and get some help. And so I did. And, you know, that had some mixed results for me in my life, but it got me on my way. And okay. so, you know, for that, I'm, I'm grateful. Um, and um life was a struggle. I, I mean, there's just no two ways about it. And I am this weird person who has had incredible blessing and success in my professional life, in my public life, but in my private life, behind closed doors, I really, every day was a struggle. It was, it was just difficult. Life was very difficult. So even though you know, as a high schooler, I graduated as one of the valedictorians and I had very good grades. I had deep inner struggles and I struggled to make friends. I struggled socially, just a lot of depression. And so life was very mixed for me. 
and that continued into college. You know, I was very successful in college in terms of getting good grades and that kind of thing. But my daily life was very hard. And I struggled with suicidal thoughts nearly every day Mm. um, for 30 years. And I would have many suicidal thoughts a day. And and so my inner life was difficult. It it was not a, a fun place to be. I didn't get an official diagnosis, however, until 2005. Uh, I was 35 years old and my life was in complete breakdown at that point. My marriage was in trouble. I had two very young children. I didn't know why. I, I just couldn't figure out my life. I, I, I couldn't figure out how to function or how to live. And um, I had gotten written up at work. I had, you know, just all kind of relationship problems. I couldn't, I didn't really know how to have long-term friendships. I had a string of people that over the years that I had hurt or damaged because I just, I didn't know how to get along with people. I was a very, I really struggled relationally and wasn't very kind to people. And and I, I hurt people. I damaged them along the way. And um, so finally in 2005, it all kind of came to a head. I was in Hawaii doing some speaking for my job. And I started noticing that I was struggling with what I now know are hallucinations. Mm. And I had never experienced that before. And I knew I just needed to stay safe enough to get home so that I could get help. Visual hallucinations? Yeah, not not auditory, but visual hallucinations. Yeah. And um, so it was it was hard times. And I had just started counseling again. My husband, God bless him, sat me down and said, you know, you need help. This is hurting our kids. And I was trying as best I could. I was trying so hard to be a good mom, but I was struggling. And my husband saw the struggle and my boss sat me down and had the very same conversation. You need to get help. And she gave me the the name of a counselor. So I finally called this counselor and I had just started therapy. I'd been in therapy maybe six months or so. Like it was just at the very beginning of my journey. And then I started having these, these hallucinations and stuff. And I had also just started on um, medication for depression. My therapist could see that I needed more than just therapy. So she sent me to a psychiatrist and I got on medication And it seemed like it was really helping in the beginning. And I was feeling a lot better and I was doing better. And that's why I was able to go on this business trip was because Mm -hmm. I had been doing much better. But then while I was on the business trip is when I started having the hallucinations. So I came home, told my therapist, and she sent me right away to the psychiatric hospital Mm -hmm. and got in God's provision. It just so happened that the head psychiatrist at the psychiatric hospital that was covered by my insurance was her former supervisor from a previous job. And so she was able to go talk to him and I was able to get assigned to him as my psychiatrist while I was in the psychiatric hospital. 
but those were some, that was some dark days, you know, like yeah. it, I, I had, because of the, my problem, ongoing problems with feeling suicidal, they put me in the locked unit and um, that was difficult. That yeah. was some, some dark days, you know, like many people might not know this, but in a psychiatric unit, when you're in the locked unit, you don't get things like blankets or a mirror to look into, to brush your teeth. Anything that can harm yourself. Yeah. You have to ask you for shampoo yourself. and they only give you like enough. that's like in a little paper cup, you know, and so they control and manage everything that you have. And, um, was, you know, they didn't let me have a picture of my family or, you know, anything that made me feel connected. There was no lock on the door. That was a little spooky. So, you know, those were some, those are some dark, dark times, you know, and I ended up, uh, thankfully I was only in the locked area for about, I don't know, four or five days. And then I was able to get out of that and into the regular area. And then eventually I got out of the inpatient, but I remained outpatient for another three months. And they were just trying to figure out what my diagnosis was. I didn't really fit any of the normal categories. They weren't really sure what was going on with me. And so they stuck me in some, some groups. They thought, you know, she'll sort it out in the groups. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that was a long, it was a long journey for me, but eventually I got the right diagnosis that I was bipolar and type two bipolar, which is basically different than like the bipolar that Carrie Fisher or Patty Duke experienced, which is the standard traditional bipolar of high highs and then low, low crashing. And then, you know, this kind of cycling, and then you might be stable for a while, but then you might have another cycle. My Type two bipolar is long sustained depression with a smaller spike and then a crash. And then you never kind of come back to normal. You're just always then in your everyday in long-term mm -hmm. depression. And um, so that was actually good news for me because mm -hmm. once I had the right diagnosis, they could give me the correct treatment. And Part of the problem was they had me on antidepressants instead of mood stabilizers. And apparently if you're bipolar and you're on antidepressants, it can actually backfire. And that was exactly what had happened to me. Mm -hmm. And so once they got me on mood stabilizers, I couldn't believe within 48 hours, I just was like a different person. I'm like, oh my word, I feel like... My whole life, I've been walking through mud, and then now all of a sudden, I can think more clearly, and I didn't have as many suicidal thoughts. Like my life felt manageable for the first time, mm -hmm. and so through weekly therapy and quarterly medical appointments, I was able to stabilize. I was able to return to work. I was able to slowly win people's trust back at my job. I was able to slowly make new friends. I was able to get more involved in my church. I was able to get promotions at work over time. So my life changed dramatically after I got my diagnosis in 2005. So 
that made life feel hopeful for me. And then after being in that journey for about 10 years, the Lord took me on another journey of healing where I got completely healed. Praise God. Bipolar disorder on November the 7th, 2014. And that was very unexpected. But I have lived a very lovely life. God in his grace saw fit to heal me from mental illness at that point. And, um, you know, life still has its ups and downs. It still has its good days. But I always tell people, look, I I have bad days now, but my worst day is not as bad as, as being, as struggling with being bipolar. And there, you know, that feels, life feels hope, much more hopeful now. And, um, you know, now I'm in my fifties and I've been um, healed for a while and, that's been its own journey. So anyways, that's kind of the big, big picture. It's a big story. It is. That's an amazing story of how powerful God completely healed you and was with you this whole time. Do you, do you see now looking back that if the Lord was with you, where was your faith at that time while you were going through it? That's such a good question. Um, I know 100% for, for me, the only way I could have made it through all of that was that I knew as a result of getting saved when I was 15, that I had a purpose. I had a purpose in Christ. I had been born for a purpose. Knowing that is what kept me alive some days because I did struggle with almost daily suicidal thoughts for 30 years. And Life, life was very difficult, but I think knowing that I had that purpose in Christ and orienting myself toward the things of the Lord, you know, that provided boundaries for me Mm -hmm. that kept me from doing really stupid stuff. One of the reasons they had such a hard time diagnosing me was because my faith was so central to who I am. I said, you know, there's just some things I don't, I would never do. Like, I'm never going to go out and have hookup sex with somebody or do crazy spending or go on a binge with drugs. I just knew that like with God and knowing his word, there were boundaries, there were guardrails to my life. And so in spite of the fact that my inner world was very difficult. And I had thoughts of doing crazy things. Mm -hmm. I just knew, nope, that's not what God has for me. That's Mm -hmm. not how I live a life pleasing to God. That would destroy my marriage. That would destroy my children. That would destroy my livelihood. That would hurt my mother. All of those things help provide boundaries for me and helped me make better decisions. And again, that's not to say I didn't hurt people. I didn't make right, right terrible decisions at times. But one of the things that often happens with people who struggle with profound mental illness the way that I did is that they they compound the problem by making very sad choices. And I saw this when I was in the psychiatric hospital. Many people I was in the hospital with, like they couldn't hold a stable job. Well, I had been in the same job for over 10 years. No, not at that point. Only about seven years at that point. 
Many of them didn't have custody of their children. Nobody else was married. And so I saw like, wow, these are things that have helped me not have as much pain as I would if I wasn't trying to live a godly life at the same time. Does that does that make sense? Absolutely. Amen. And one of the things I think is, is so important. Well, first of all, I want to just say thank you so much for being so honest. It's so refreshing for people to have no facade and just tell the truth, even to say, hey, this is what it looked like outside. On the inside, this is what I was struggling with, because I think there's a lot more people who are struggling with those things or something else as intense or on the spectrum of intensity that they're not honest about. And when we're honest about it, other people don't have to lie or cover up and they can just go get the help that they need. So thank you so much for that. And I think something that, that your story reminds us of is that people who have mental health issues, regardless of what gets us there, people with mental health issues need Jesus too. We need to reach out to those with significant mental health issues. And for those that are listening, if you're struggling with right now with mental health issues, you need Jesus regardless. You're not exempt from that. You need Jesus. Jesus can help you and heal you as in, in your case. And he can bring a lot of people into your life as well to help support you. And just as a side note, when it comes to bipolar disorder, a lot of times we like to think, well, we'll just give a medication only. But even if you have a genetic predisposition for something or genetic disorder, there's still counseling to be done. They're still learning how to deal with stress. They're still learning how do I deal healthy with relationships? How do I have mutuality? How do I gain resilience? You have to learn those things. That stuff you're not going to get from medication. Boy, that's that's a whole word right there. I'm so glad that you brought that up because too often what I see is a very truncated approach to treating mental health issues. And I really realized early on um, in my journey that I had to be a strong advocate for myself and educating myself and that I was in charge of my, and I don't like this word, but recovery, because, you know, at that time I didn't, I had to learn how to live with being bipolar because I thought this was a condition I was going to have for the rest of my life. And so I had to be vigorous about educating myself. So I first had to understand once I had a diagnosis, okay, what is this? And you had to do it with less energy. Yeah. And motivation. Yeah. As, but I had to push myself of like, you know, all right, what is this? What are the symptoms? What is the impacts on my kids, on my husband? How am I going to cope with this? So yes, medication was part of that journey. And I want to I bless all doctors. This is not a, 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 a podcast about slamming, you know, conventional medicine. You know, I'm grateful, you know, but I think that if all you do is treat mental illness with medication, that person won't necessarily get better. Their symptoms might lessen, but there's other things that you, the person has to do. And this is the conversations that I don't think people want to talk about right. is the issue of personal responsibility. There is a sensibility in our culture that, oh, this person's mentally ill. So therefore, and I'm always thinking, therefore, what? They're not morally responsible for their decisions. Like that's that's just that's not helpful. And it's not th helpful to think they have no ability to do anything. Exactly. That, that we have to throw out the door. Even if somebody has limited ability to do things, we have to stop thinking, oh, they're poor them in the sense that they can't do anything for themselves. Because now, especially if they're benefiting from that, they might not rise up. And that's not for us to 
put on somebody else that they can't do that when a lot of times they can. Yeah. And I, uh, so the second thing I had to do in addition to researching was figuring out, all right, what's my participation in this? How am I going to make decisions that are in alignment and consistent with preserving my family and minimizing the impact on my children? And so I had to intentionally order my life that even if I was could tell, like I got to the point where I could tell, oh, I'm about to have an episode. So. Mm. I had to get to the point where I would minimize the impact of that, where I would make different decisions. And I learned how to stop the episodes, how to stop. So one of the things I had to do, practical example, I used to be a terrible, you know, workaholic and I would just work all the time and it would take me away from my kids. Well, working too much was a trigger for me to have an episode. Mm -hmm. So I had to become very disciplined about stopping and starting work at a structured time. And that I, if I had to work late, it was a one-off. And I would tell my husband, I'm sorry, I have to work late. And, but then I had to get right back into my structure the next day. Because if I would do two or three days in a row like that, I would start cycling. And so in order to minimize the impact on my children, I, what I had to do was, you know, to use Christian words, kill my flesh and do the right thing, you know, for the sake of my children. So that meant having structured stop and start times for work. So I would not get triggered. That's what I mean by, you know, being proactive and taking initiative in my own treatment. I had to, I didn't sit around and wait for a therapist to tell me what my triggers were. I had to figure out my triggers. Mm -hmm. And then I had to figure out how to minimize the chance of falling in that hole. And so what I used to call it was, um, you know, I, I keep falling in the same hole. Oh, here I am again in the hole. Well, now at least I'm noticing I'm in the hole. Oh, mm -hmm. now I'm noticing I'm in the hole and I can find a way out quicker. Over time, then I'm like, oh, look, there's the hole. I can avoid it. And then later it was like, I know there's a hole down this road. I'm going to take a different road. But that is what I had to do was being proactive is learning from my mistakes, but then making a different choice and not keep falling in the same hole over and over again. A couple of things I was thinking was, you know, sometimes bipolar disorder, and in your case, but sometimes people confuse borderline personality disorder for bipolar disorder. I think there's a lot of people who are misdiagnosed bipolar when actually they have a persistent personality issue I just want to remind people that if, if you have a particular personality disorder, back in when I went to school, you know, a long time ago, there was this thought that it couldn't be treated. Now, praise God, that is not the belief of most people. Just know that it can be treated. Even things like bipolar disorder and other things can be treated. And at the very minimal, there can be managed to where there is joy in life and you can have successful relationships. So just remember that. And really, uh, again, to drive home the point of it's, it's not usually just medication. There's not a medication to fix a personality. You got to do the no. work. If there was, that'd, we'd be prescribing it like this, left and right, right? But well, yeah, no, I would love to speak to that for a minute because there was some, some discussion with me, for me as to the, some debate among my my mental health professionals, whether I had bipolar disorder or whether I had borderline personality disorder. And there are um, some overlapping symptoms and that can be difficult and, and a difficult journey. And I guess I just want to encourage everyone, you know, like get professional help, 
but also don't be afraid to fire your therapist. Like if the therapist isn't a good match, it's like dating. Like you kind of know after two or three dates, like this isn't going to work out. Like this is not a good match and that's okay. Because one thing I learned when I was in the psychiatric hospital is they, they had to see it like a lot of therapists. And I thought, oh, this is interesting because I've only ever had one therapist. Mm. And so I thought they were all the same. And so then I realized like, oh, I really click with this one, this one, you know, my encouragement to people is get professional help, but don't be afraid to fire your therapist and get somebody that you really feel like you can work with and be a team with. When, when people go to therapy and they say it didn't work, I always ask the question, well, how much effort did you put into it? Because therapy isn't about what the therapist, the therapist isn't going to like say some magical incantation over you to make you all better. You've got to bring something there for her to work, him or her to work with. And so that's kind of my... A second tip besides get professional help is be unswervingly committed to exploring the truth about your sin. Be unswervingly, unflinchingly committed because when I struggled with bipolar disorder, it made me very vulnerable to certain sins like anger and rage and backbiting and gossip. And so be unswerving, unflinching in your commitment to tell the truth about yourself and your sin and your struggle. Bring that into therapy. Explore why do I have this hairpin trigger on this issue that immediately makes me angry then the magic of therapy starts happening but if you just if you just keep showing up every week it's like my grandfather used to say like sitting in a garage doesn't make you a car going to therapy doesn't make you well it's what you bring to the process and the initiative that you take I wish we had that dust that that treatment dust that would just fix everything I wish we did yeah it would be great but uh one thing I I did want to mention is Um, You want to make sure that your therapist has a good understanding of what is going on, what does it look like, what does treatment look like, that they believe that you can get better. And I think that's one of the defining factors of whether I keep them or not, in addition to are we able to work well together or not. So you want to make sure it's not because... You just didn't like something about them unless it's significant, but because maybe they're not as knowledgeable. Well, do you have any words of encouragement any additional words for others that are going through significant mental health issues right now to continue to press forward, to yeah. looking straight forward to Christ? Yeah, I, I'd love to share just like a couple of snippets of, of proverbial wisdom and, and from me and my experience and then share a little bit about more ways that being a Christian in particular helped me. I guess first, like just as a general wisdom, I like to say, uh, for those who struggle with bipolar disorder or something similar is distrust your ideations, distrust the idea that you are the smartest person in the room, because that is what led to me getting myself into a lot of fights and a lot of uh, hurting of other people is when I, I believed in my ideations and I really truly believed that I was the smartest person in the room. Adopting a posture of humility and curiosity. Um, So uh, even if I was having like ideation types of thoughts, 
mm-hmm. of I'm better this than this person. This person's stupid. I'm smarter than this. I really know what's going on here. Da da da. I had to purposely kind of again kill my flesh. Like I'm tell tell that part of my brain to shut up. Go over here in the corner. Be quiet. And I'm going to intentionally adopt a posture of curiosity and humility, like mm-hmm. asking right. questions. Uh, I might not have all the answers. I might not know everything. I might need some other data. And mm-hmm. so I had to learn how to do that. And that's what helped to save my marriage, you know, because I wasn't always trying to start a fight every time. And so that would be just some practical advice. Love that. My other kind of second piece of more practical advice is when you're faced with a difficult decision, choose the hardest path. It's almost always the correct path. When I was in a posture of, you know, I want to harm myself or I just want to give up on my marriage or I want to just explode in my anger, that would have, those would have been like the easier paths. But the way that I kept order in my life was, okay, I have a choice right now. I can explode in anger or something else. Maybe I need to get curious about the something else. This path of not exploding in my anger and being curious and asking more questions seems harder. That's probably the right path. And I tried to develop a discipline of when I was faced with a difficult decision and I knew I would try to play it out in my mind. If I go down this path, it's going to be destructive to my children, to my relationship with my husband, to my job, to my coworker. It's not going to get me where I want to go. Mm-hmm. But this path over here seems harder to control my tongue, to be patient, to go again, to forgive. But that's probably the, 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 the better thing. So those are just two pieces of wisdom mm-hmm. that, helped me kind of cope with my, my inner world. I love it. I love it because you aren't just going along with whatever you feel, whatever you thought in that, in that minute, you had to stop and challenge and and challenge those things and see, is that right? Is this the right logical way? Is this the best way? Is this this true? Is this true? And I think that's one of the things that's missing right now for so many people. So that they're, because they believe that whatever you feel is true. Yeah. That's not what the Bible tells us. Right. And I think that's one of the dangers of our culture is that they're telling people the most authentic part of yourself is to react to your feelings. That's right. When people would say like, well, if you're bipolar, you know, like, why aren't you divorced or why aren't you in jail or why aren't you on drugs? Well, it was because I, I, I didn't, I didn't listen to my emotions. I, Many times I told my emotions, go over here in the corner, be quiet. And I tried to choose a path that was consistent with how am I going to help my children? How am I not going to pass along a legacy of chaos and abuse toward Mm. my children? And, you know, how am I going to not listen to my emotions when everything in my head is telling me that I have the right to explode in my anger? How do I ignore that? and figure out how to act, you know, to use Bible language righteously. So, yeah, I think those are some things that for me, that my faith um, helped me get to wellness in, in, in my journey. So that even when I was still had the official diagnosis of being bipolar, I was still very functional 
and I was growing and those things, those principles were helping me. I think for me too, like from my faith point of view, things that were very helpful to me is that I went to seminary. Now I know that sounds weird, but this was before my diagnosis, before medication, before anything. I just knew something was kind of wrong for me in my inner world. I started taking seminary classes and that's how theology found me because I recognized that I had a lot of untrue thoughts and beliefs about who God was. And they were based on difficulties from my childhood and who I thought my my earthly father was. So theology for me in the beginning was really a quest to have true thoughts, accurate thoughts about God as my father. And so I started taking theology classes as a way of healing myself, you know, from these very toxic beliefs that I had about the world. And so by learning theology, taking a logic class, that was one of the most turning moments for me in my 20s. Was I took a, my husband and I took a logic class together at a church. And then we had some shared language that we could have with each other. So when my thoughts became very disorderly, he could help me um, have some objective ways of looking at the world. And then I could bring my thoughts back into order again. So as crazy as it sounds, before I even knew what was really wrong, wrong with me, these were some of my coping, my ways of coping and keeping my life together, exercise. And I went through a training back in 2012 with a ministry that Monique and I used to be involved in before we started CFBU. And the ministry kind of took people through experiential exercises and those exercises really helped me explore how I present myself to people. Hmm. And I could, I learned how to present myself to people in a way that reflected my heart because I learned that there was like this disconnect because I just presented myself as angry and irritated all the time. Well, of course, no one wants to be around that. Nobody wants to come to that party. That's right. no fun. Party of one, yes. Yeah, and so through that a training process, I learned like, oh, I can actually present myself the way that I want people to see me, which is as an empathetic, kind person who is an invitation for them to, you know, share something about themselves. You know, those are some of the tools that I worked through that that also were part of my journey. It wasn't just one thing, but it was always a quest to improve my situation, improving my wellness. That was kind of the overarching theme. Praise God. I love that. That's great insight. I know that everyone listening right now is just gaining this insight and is just so joyful about it. So thank you for, for offering that. Now, do you have any words of encouragement for the family and friends of those who are still in the struggle right now? It is so important. This They're often forgotten or they're often left to dealing with things by themselves because so much energy is going into this person who's ha- struggling with these mental health issues. Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to um, cheer you on and recognize the reality that when you have somebody in your life who has significant mental illness, it's hard. Every day is hard sometimes. And that struggle is real. And I just want to say thank you. If your family member isn't even able to say thank you to you, Thank you. I'll say it on their behalf in this moment because it it is challenging. 
and it's exhausting for you and my heart breaks for you. And, and um, I know that that can be very, very difficult. Um, the other thing I want to say is that you aren't responsible for fixing your loved one who struggles with mental illness. That is not your responsibility. That is not uh, your lane. That person is more capable than you probably realize to make different choices, but you can't force them to make those choices. You can't force them to own their situation and to take initiative in their improvement and taking steps toward better health. Those things are not up to you. And I know that's going to be hard to hear because some people are going to be like, well, if I don't do all these interventions and I don't cajole, then this person's going to be homeless or they're going to be dead. And it is, I understand that those are very real possibilities, but you also have to recognize that you're a human and not God. Amen. You're not responsible for fixing these people. And it is absolutely true. And it's okay to recognize and give yourself space to grieve that other people's decisions make your life difficult. That is absolutely probably a fact. You know, and ask the Lord, though, how involved are you supposed to be? Don't mm. assume that you are supposed to be involved at a particular level. Ask the Lord how involved you are supposed to be and do that as hard as it may be. Yeah. As hard as it may be, because sometimes that person is going to need some consequences to, to wake them up. My last thing is to say to the friends of people that, you know, a family is struggling with mental illness in their family, bring them a casserole, organize a meal train, do something that lets them know they're not invisible. When I was in the psychiatric hospital for so long, if I had had cancer, there would have been a meal train five miles long to help my family, my husband and my children be sustained. But when you're, when you're in, the, in the psychiatric hospital, nobody wants to have that conversation. But that family also needs some casseroles. Bake some bad casseroles, take them over there and bless that family and let them know that they are seen, they are loved, pray with them, send them notes, ask how you can be present with them. There was a season where one time my family was up on vacation out of state and I was at home alone and being a home alone for me was a trigger a potential trigger for having an episode, but I knew that. And I'm like, I'm not going to fall in that hole. I'm going to take a different road. And what am I going to do? And so I started calling friends that were local and I asked them, can you come stay the night with me this night? And I called a different friend. Can you come stay with me the night this night and this night? And I had all my friends lined up and I, I am not falling in this hole. And so I would go to work and do my regular structured routine. And then I came home and I had a friend there, you know, so be that friend. That was an awkward conversation for me to call up my friends and say, can you come over to my house and stay the night with me while my family's away? Um, but it would really help me out. Like, um, be that friend. And to, if somebody asks for help, do what you can to try to step up 
into that. Thank you. I think that one of the most healing things for people as they're going along treatment and learning healthy ways that's outside of going to therapy is having genuine relationships, relationships with people who genuinely care about them. And it's hard to be genuine if you don't have some sort of boundaries, which means you might have to do some tough things because not everybody gets better with love and time. Oh, some people that is such you a have to word. set boundaries because otherwise some people get worse. Yes. With just loving them. They get worse. Some people need healthy boundaries. And then a lot of times they start getting better. The one way to maintain a genuine relationship is being honest and having good boundaries and loving people and their limitations and loving the positive aspects of them. Because when everybody leaves people who have mental health issues, they have no one. And that's not helpful and healing. That's such a good word because healing can come through boundaries and that it's okay to set boundaries. It's okay to have limits. It's okay to say, well, I can't do this, but here's what I could do. Yes. Also just having a sense of yourself of knowing and this person's just, there's been a few people, you know, where they're just so toxic. I'll pray for you, but you got to stand at a distance because it's mm-hmm. just. You got to limit your time with them. Yeah, because it, it, it's rough. Now, I don't even think most people that are hearing you today had any idea whatsoever of what life was like for you before you were healed. I mean, your life now, your ministries are so powerful Uh, You are just so well put together in so many ways. If you can just remind us again about your ministries and where people can find out about it, because they're amazing and you just do such an amazing job. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much. And, and, you know, for so many years I labored in obscurity and there were many, many times when I would teach to five people, you know, and it was, it was small things, but in that God even used that to teach me and train me how to be a better teacher. So that when things came along and my platform started growing, finally, I was ready. I was more mature. And so there was some grace for me in that. Like if I had had so much success when I was still so sick, I might not have dealt with that very well. No, That's right. That's <laughs> so yeah, you could go connect with me at Theology Mom everywhere. I'm known as Theology Mom. I have a podcast, a website, a YouTube channel, and you can also get connected with my ministry partner, Monique Dusan and myself at centerforbiblicalunity.com. We have podcasts, a blog, just a ton of resources related to a biblically faithful vision on race and justice. Thank you. Now, before we jump in our scripture section, one question that just jumped in my mind is, uh, how did you know that you were healed? What did that, what let you know that? Oh, that's such a great question. I think the the short answer to that is, because it's a whole other story, but when I woke up the next morning after some people prayed for me, and I woke up the next morning and I did not have suicidal thoughts for the first time, you know, in 30 years, because usually when I would wake up in the morning, the first thought I would have was of harming myself. Mm-hmm. And when I woke up on November the 8th, 2014, and I did not have those thoughts, I was like, something's different. So that was really my first indication. And then it was really just over time. 
as I started realizing like, oh, that's not an issue for me anymore, or I don't think like that anymore. And yeah. Now, if we jump into our scripture section, do you have a scripture or a thousand scriptures that you'd like to bring today that pertain to what we discussed? Yeah, well, this is a scripture that's just been a lot to me through my whole life. It's Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways and he will make your path straight. I think this is just such a beautiful summary of my whole life of even as a, a broken teenager, Um, I was always trusting in the Lord that I had some kind of purpose. And I trusted in that with all my heart, even on my worst days. I was like, no, I was made for a purpose. I will live. I will live one more day because I know that God made me for a purpose and not to rely on my own understanding, like getting healed from a major mental disorder. That's not normal. (laughs) Like that, that's rare. It does happen. I've had two other friends now get, get healed from bipolar disorder, um, that I have known. And so it does occasionally happen, but it's definitely not the norm. And so, but to not rely on my understanding, like God could have some kind of, some kind of plan that I, that makes no sense in the natural world, but he has a supernatural plan. And so, you know, knowing that God had a plan for my life, there was a purpose for my life. And, and I really thought, Sincerely, I would not be healed until I was in heaven. But the mm-hmm. fact that I've that, you know, in my late in, later in life that I'm having these opportunities to, to minister on this side of healing is just every day I wake up is a blessing. And to 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 think about that God had a plan that I did not understand. And when when I told him, you know, after my healing, like this doesn't make sense to me. My theology doesn't accommodate this because <laughs> I didn't really believe miracles were for today. It really left me in a messed up place. Um, you know, and he had a plan that I did not understand, but thankfully it didn't, it didn't rely on that on acknowledging him in all my ways. Um, I just have wanted to serve God my whole life. I wanted to be a missionary. I wanted to bring the the hope of Jesus to other people. And I still hope, you know, someday I would love to participate in prison ministry. I teach once a month at the rescue mission, teaching Bible and theology classes to the homeless. Um, I really just want to bring the hope of Jesus to everywhere I go and make my whole life just a hundred percent dedicated to him. So that's a scripture that's been very meaningful to me. So a couple of scriptures that I brought would be Romans 8, 5, 6, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, set their minds on the things of the spirit for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. We are, regardless of what's going on in our flesh, regardless of what's going on in our mental health, we set our mind on Christ, on God. And then this next scripture is just one that I that reverberates in my head is Isaiah 26, three, you keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And what I love about that is that it reminds me that there can be perfect peace. It's not something that we have to generate inside, but it's because we keep our job is to keep our mind stayed on him. That's our job and to trust in him. And then we have perfect peace. He can provide that. So thanks again so much for joining us. Now, if for those that are listening, if there was one thing that they could, that you would want them to remember, out of all the things that, that you've said today, what is the one thing you'd have them take away? Well, I think I would speak to um, people that struggle with mental illness, and I would just say, persevere. 
Mm. Persevere. Um, no matter what the enemy throws at you, um, just know that God has a plan for you. He has a purpose for your life and persevere. Uh, I know that suicide is on the rise, yeah. but I want to tell you today that your family needs you more than you need to escape your pain. And there were many days that I woke up and I knew my children need me more in my difficult state of mind, in my, in the battle, in the struggle, my children need me more than I need to relieve my pain. And so I think that would be my word is just to persevere and to try to think about or consider also the the role of the enemy in mental illness at times yes to you know make our symptoms seem bigger than they might be or to exaggerate them or to invite us into conflict and damaging other people that we can say no to because the holy spirit lives in us and so there's other possibilities that are available so i think that that would be my takeaway Thank you for those great reminders. Also, if you don't have family or you're ostracized or you've ostracized yourself from your family or friends, you have people in the future that God has to hear your testimony of how he has worked in your life. Your testimony could be so powerful to help transform somebody else. It may be the thing that God utilizes as a catalyst for somebody else to persevere, to grow and to grow closer to him. Thank you so much, Krista, for joining us today. We're so glad to have you today. And thank you also to those that are watching or listening today. We're so glad that you joined us. Don't forget that we are on Facebook and on Instagram and our video is on YouTube. Our audio podcast is on all the major podcast platforms. So uh, run out and go check out all the episodes that we have. And would you mind taking us out? And, you know, I always say taking us out. Would you mind closing us out in prayer? My husband always laughs at me when I say that. Absolutely. Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are for us. That you are a father who has made a way for us to have fellowship with you through the work and the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in you, there's a hope of other possibilities because of the power of the Holy Spirit that lives in us. We don't have to listen to the world. We don't have to listen to the devil. We don't have to listen to our flesh that we can do some things to um, overcome our circumstances, even in the struggle, help us to be strong warriors, to be courageous in whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever of adversity that you've put in front of us, help us to know that that adversity is there to invite us to learn. It, it is an opportunity for us to grow in our sanctification and our life in you. Lord, mental illness is difficult. It's hard. Many days are hard. Some days feel hopeless. Lord, I just, I can so identify with that. I've, I've had bad days, bad weeks. I even had a bad decade, but I just thank you so much for how you can use even the difficult things in our life, if we truly trust you with all of our heart and we try to obey your commands, that you will turn those things for our good. You, they will help us grow and make us stronger in you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.
Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. Until next time. Ciao.